please be seated. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning and to see all of your bright and shiny faces, right? And like the sun shining outside, the sun shining in our hearts. I love, I love the song, All I Have is Christ, and uh, All I Need is Christ, and All I Want is Christ, amen? And uh, he, is, he is everything to us. Join me, if you would, in your Bibles in the book of 1 John, as we continue our study through the book. I, I trust, I know that um, there are times that we're not able to be here, and uh, I trust that you would take the opportunity, if you're not able to be here, to um, visit the church's website and to take advantage of the sermon series so that you're uh, caught up and uh, know where we're at. A lot, of, a lot of bad doctrine comes from hearing a part of a, a study. Amen. So we don't want that to happen. So if you do, the, the church does a wonderful job of um, putting together the videos each week. And uh, you can take advantage of that and watch those. And then when you come back the following week, you'll be right there where we are. And uh, that will um, eliminate a lot of confusion. Amen. So First uh, John chapter number one is where we'll be at this morning. And we're talking about the root of restoration. If you remember correctly, First um, John is written to a group of believers, very likely a church who has... Um, just gone through a split of sorts, and um, they have uh, a Gnostic, probably a a Gnostic false teacher has crept into the church and divided the church based upon the teachings that Christ, it was impossible for Christ to be fully man. And uh, we know that that's a heresy. Um, If Christ was not fully man, then he could not be our savior, and he could not be our Lord. So this doctrine was not something that was a small doctrine. It was a, a major doctrine. But as we studied a few weeks ago, the, the doctrinal heresy did not start out by them saying that Christ could not be the Son of God. Um, the doctrinal heresy started out by saying that flesh and substance is evil and spirit is good. And uh, what we learned that week is that doctrinal error doesn't always start out big. Now, the devil is very, very subtle, and uh, he starts off with small variations of the truth. I remember the devil's goal was to be like God. I didn't say that his goal was to be dislike God, but his goal was to be like God. So in so many ways, the devil mimics the truth with, with just enough error to make it, to make it flawed. And um, this is the danger that we face today, that really the big wrestling match for uh, true Christians is not um, whether or not we're going to fall prey for the big, deep, hard doctrinal error, because we're, you know, we're above that, right? Um, the problem is, is are we going to fall prey to the small doctrinal errors that ultimately will lead to larger doctrinal errors? And so we have to definitely be guarded. At the beginning of the book, um, John starts off with uh, talking about some roots, some, some key ingredients to being restored. Remember, the three main goals of, jo- of 1 John is that uh, John is writing to restore a group of believers to joy, to unity, and to confidence in Christ, to, to eternal security. All right, he says in verse number four here, these things have I written unto you that your joy might be, or that our joy might be full. 
Um, he talks about in chapter number five, these things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. And so John's emphasis is on the believers that are left in this group that they might be strengthened, that they might be encouraged, that they might be um, lifted up in their faith and, and restored to unity and restored to hope and uh, restored to um, restored the church to what, its, to what its purpose is. So the root of these things is found in the first four verses, and um, we'll read those, and then we'll uh, get into our study this morning. The Bible says, that which, is, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We we looked last week at the first two verses, and the first root of having this restoration is to have a a proper view of who God is. Um, To understand God's, we looked at the fact that, that Jesus Christ is life, um, he's the source of life, he's the bread of life, he's the water of life, he's the sustainer of life, that Jesus Christ is our life. He has the ability to bring life to dead things as he has done to each one of us who are believers. We also saw that he is unchanging, he never changes, and then lastly in these um, few verses, we see that Jesus Christ um, was manifested to us, he was revealed to us. Now with those things being said, in order to be restored, we have to have a proper view of God, but there's another side to this, to this coin, and John doesn't leave the second side of this coin out. This is the more practical side. Now, some people will look and say, you know, I have the proper view of God, so therefore my fellowship with God and my relationship with God is right. But, but John moves from a from the proper view of God to the other side of the same coin, which is the proper view of people. It's the proper view of others. You see, restoration doesn't just come by having a right view of God. When we have the right view of God, it's going to naturally result in having the right view of others. Matter of fact, as we go through this book, you will find that John actually writes more about loving others about having the right attitude towards others, about blessing others, about caring for others than he does about how we have this attitude towards God. And the reason for that is, is that the attitude that we have towards others is a direct manifestation of our attitude that we have towards God. And we live in a generation of people that are very spiritually minded, right? So we, we conclude that, hey, you know something, I'm in, I'm in harmony with God, I'm good with God, I, I don't really like that guy, and I, I pretty much hate that guy, and that guy over there, he's a jerk, but, but me and God, we're in good shape, right? It's kind of how we live our, our lives, and what the Lord teaches us in 1 John is, is that's, an in, that's an impossibility, that if our relationship with God is proper, that our relationship with others will also um, reflect that relationship with God. It will be manifested by how we treat other people, how we live in our lives with them. 
Here are some things that God says about his economy. Number one, in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, that God commands us not only to love him, but the second commandment, and he says the second commandment is like the first commandment, which is to do what? Is to love others as you love yourself. So the first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with, with all that you are. And the second commandment is like the first, to love others like you love yourself. Love others. In 1 John chapter number 4, in the Lord's economy, our love for others is the measurement by which we determine our love for God. As a matter of fact, here's what he says. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also, must also love his brother. So God commands us, love God, but also love others. Matter of fact, one of the most unique things that God changes in our hearts when we become Christians is he takes us from being hateful, bitter people to being loving, kind people. He takes us from being rebellious people to being forgiving people. He, he transitions us. He makes us into new creatures in Christ. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 4. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you have been sealed for the day of redemption. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, do we? But here's how. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When we think about these verses and we think about the, the core, the, the, the background, the history behind the writing of 1 John, we understand that this is not an easy task. John is not calling them to love their friends. He's calling them to love people who might possibly be their enemies. He's, he's calling them to love people that might possibly hate them. He uses the illustration of, of, uh, of Cain and Abel. And he talks about don't be like Cain who hated Abel and, and ultimately killed him. But he doesn't give Abel the right to hate Cain either. There are people who are going to hate us as Christians there are going to be people who hate us because we stand for what's right, because we love the Lord and we love what he has done for us. And, and those people don't need to experience our hatred in return, but they need to experience our love in return. Can I submit to you this morning that one day in your life you hated God? The Bible says that we were his enemies. Do you believe that? At one point, before we were converted, we were the enemies of God. We hated his very essence. We hated his presence. We hated everything that God stood for. But yet, while we were still in that state, what did Christ do for us? Christ died for us. Why did Christ die for us? Because he, because he loved us. Do you know what the world needs to see out of Christians, folks? The world needs to see Jesus in us. They need to see that which is impossible being manifested through us because it's not us accomplishing it. It is the spirit of our Lord accomplishing it through us. That's why in Matthew 5, when he talks about loving, he talks about, hey, it's easy to love your friends. 
It's easy to love your neighbors, but then he calls them to a whole different type of love, doesn't he? He calls them to a supernatural love. He calls them to a love that was beyond their abilities. And I will, I will submit to you this morning that loving your enemy is the essence of Christianity. It is the most defining part of being a true Christian. And that's why 1 John is all about that. Romans 12 and verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. And I quoted to you Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. So John, we know that John, the writer of this book, was known as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? The beloved disciple. So John, who was a recipient, I, I like that John had a good, good name, right? I can, I, can, I, can, I can kind of put myself in his shoes and be like, hey, there, there you go. You know, really, my name is really John Mark, but I don't know that I want to associate with John Mark all the time. I like to associate with the other John. You get my point, right? So here's the thing. John the beloved, John the disciple whom Jesus had a special love for, refused refused to be unloving. He refused to not show that love to other people. He refused to not let what Jesus had done for him flow through him into the life of others. And that should be the heart, that should be all of our hearts, shouldn't it? That what God has done for us, that we refuse. Yes, life is going to be difficult. And yes, people are going to be hard. And, and every time a, a person is difficult to live with, realize this. That, hey, you know something? Here's an opportunity for me to be Jesus. Because when people are kind to you, you don't get to be Jesus. You get to be you, right? When people are mean to you, you get to be Jesus. When people revile you. When people persecute you for righteousness sake. That's when you get to be Jesus. So in so many ways, we don't get to be Jesus until we have enemies, until we have people that dislike us. So John, the beloved disciple, refused to be unloving. He refused to be unkind. And so he writes this book, and he writes in the latter part of these, of these four verses, he writes about how we, see, how we should see others. How did John see others? And there are three things I want to give to you that were John's heart for the people that he's writing to. And, and, and remember this, John is writing to the people who are left. He doesn't know if they're believers. He doesn't know if they're pro or, he doesn't, as a matter of fact, throughout the book, he, he gives them tests to, to see where they were at spiritually. He, he, he tries to prove where they're at. John writes to the people with a compassionate heart and here's what his desire was, threefold. The Bible says this in verse number three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. The first thing that John, John desired was that they hear the truth. That they hear the truth. John saw a group of people who were hurting. John saw a group of people who were confused. John saw a group of people who really were, um, in so many different ways, disappointed by what had happened. And John's heart, 
John's passion for them was that they would hear and know the truth. And it's amazing how generation Jesus Christ taught his disciples uh, uh, and the three, uh, the three ones, the three that were closest to him, he taught even more. And, and then they taught and then they taught and each generation and generation and generation, people who have seen, have experienced, have touched and handled and, and, and dealt with the gospel and, and they're sharing it with other people. In other words, John wasn't selfish with the gospel that the Lord had shown him. All of the blessings that John experienced were not just meant for him to enjoy, but they were meant for him to be a conduit of those things. It's like God blesses us so that we can bless other people. God gives us special insight. God opens us, our eyes up to truth. God gives us the gospel. God saves us and renews us and makes us alive. Not so that we can selfishly harbor it for ourselves, but we can see somebody, you know what? That person is just like I used to be. And we can either be angry with them, frustrated with them, or we can say, I hope that they see the gospel as God has shown it to me. John's desire was that people know and hear the truth. I think sometimes we, lost, we lose sight of what God has done for us. And when we lose sight of what God has done for us, we become selfish and not sharing it with others. Psalm 68 and verse 11, the Bible says, and I'm gonna quote this verse from the New King James so it might not match up with the version that you're using, but I felt like this was a very um, accurate interpretation or translation of this verse. The Bible says, the Lord gave the word and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. The Lord gave the word and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. God gave John, God gave the disciples a special message and God has given you that same message and God has given me that same message. And it is not to be kept selfishly, it is to be ministered. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, you're familiar with it. Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. For behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John desired for people to hear the gospel. He wanted them to know the truth about who Jesus was and what he had done and how that could, how that could impact and affect them in their daily lives. Remember this as well. John not only wanted them to know the gospel, but John wanted them to know the truth. And you say, well, Pastor John, they're the same. And I know that, but I want you to get this, okay? If you study further in just even in chapter number one, John wasn't, John wasn't light. John wasn't light gospel, okay? Because right away he says, hey, if you say that you walk in the light and you don't, then you're a liar. I mean, he's, this is serious gospel stuff. John doesn't just teach a gospel that is, okay, say a prayer and you're in. That's not the gospel that John teaches. He doesn't teach a gospel that says, be baptized and you're in. Do certain catechisms and you're in. That's not the gospel that John teaches. John teaches a gospel that is totally transforming. That, that lives are different when they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if you've experienced that, say amen. amen. Yeah, see, you know what that's all about. But John's not like gospel. John wanted them to know the truth. And I'll say this. If you really care for people, if we really love people, we won't preach them like gospel. We'll preach them Bible gospel. And they may not like us. But the truth is what they need to hear, isn't it? If somebody's house is burning down, do you walk inside their house and tell them how great it looks? You know, I really like the way you decorated things. This is just a really beautiful home. Blessings on you. Have a great day. Is that what we do? What do we tell them? House is burning down. There's problems. John wanted them to know the truth. He wanted them to evaluate their own hearts to know whether or not they were truly followers of Christ. It was serious to him, and it should be serious to us. Ephesians 4 and verse 14 and 15, the Bible says, so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about with every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in every way into him who is the head even into Christ. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 through 17 says, but thanks be to God who in Christ also leads us in triumphant procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance of death to death. To the other, we are the fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We do not peddle God's word. And there are going to be people that the message of the gospel of Christ is death to them. I've often said this. If your gospel message that you preach to people doesn't offend some people, isn't death to some people, and isn't a stumbling block to some people, it's probably not the gospel. death to some, it's life to others. Might we love people enough to tell them the truth? Number two, first of all, he desired that they hear the truth. He desired that they know the truth. The second thing that we see in the text is this. He desired that they be, that they be reconciled or restored to God. He says in verse three, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. So John says that he desired to have fellowship with them again, to have a restored fellowship, a, a spiritual fellowship. And, and, and I'll submit to you this this morning as well. There is no such thing as fellowship between a believer and an unbeliever. There is no such thing the Bible says, what fellowship has light with darkness? There is no, yes, there is, there is friendliness. 
Yes, there is kindness. Yes, there is, we have acquaintances, but there is no true fellowship between a believer and an unbeliever. But John's desire was to have fellowship with these people. So what needs to happen? <laughs> what needs to happen? You need to have some reconciliation with, with God. So John says this. John says, my desire is to have fellowship with you. But truly, my fellowship is with God and with Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, is that truly our fellowship our intimacy, our closeness. The Greek word is koinonia. It means a partnership. Truly, our partnership is with Christ. And when we have a partnership with Christ and you enter into that same partnership, now we have a partnership together. We're prone as Christians, you, you know this as well as I am, we're prone to try to create partnerships without transformation we want to be everybody's partner but Christ says fellowship with him first and then fellowship with each other and John desired that John desired for them to be reconciled to God and then be reconciled to him the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18 and through 20 all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Get that. God making his appeal through us. We employ you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And there's two types of reconciliation to God. There's a reconciliation that we have and experience when we get saved. And, Paul, and John is, is possibly writing to a group of lost people. So the first goal is that they be reconciled to God. That they be restored into fellowship with him and into harmony with him. Again, this is why he writes about the different tests that he says, if you, if you walk in darkness or if you don't love your brother or if you continue to practice sin, all throughout the book of 1 John, he, he gives all of these tests so that they will know who they are and if they are not truly Christians, that they will repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. For ultimately, that is the goal of the gospel, is to bring a a man or a woman to the place of repentance where they repent where they repentance means literally that they that they they change the way that they think they don't think the same anymore um, people say well is repentance changing the way that you live so do I have to change the way that I live in order to be saved and the answer is no but when you change the way that you think you change the way that you live right so don't get the cart in front of the horse and say, hey, we have to be righteous in order to be... No, it, repentance is when we change the way we think. We no, we no longer see God the way that we saw God before. We no longer see our own sins the way that we saw our own sins before. We no longer, we no longer minimize our sinfulness. We now maximize our sinfulness. We no longer minimize God's holiness. We now maximize God's holiness. Do you know, you know an unconverted sinner does everything in their power to minimize God's holiness. 
and to minimize their sinfulness, don't they? It's true. It's just natural. It's a natural man. A truly converted person is able to maximize their sinfulness and maximize God's holiness. And no, I really have no hope, but they also maximize Jesus Christ. Right? They maximize what Jesus Christ has done for them. The world that we live in, again, wants to minimize these things so that they can feel okay with God. You know, bring God down here, bring us up here, and, and we're, we're, we're good. But God is not down here. God is up here. Amen? And we're not up here. We're, we're down here. And God doesn't bring us up. He sent his son to come down to where we are. He took, his sins on, he took our sins on himself, right? And he hung on a tree and he rose the third day and he said, he said, all of those who will have faith in me will experience the, number one, the removal of their sin because he has been their substitute, but number two, that they become recipients of his righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. I, this morning, I, I literally bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm actually treated by God the Father as if I had done all of the wonderful things that Jesus Christ has done. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Pretty amazing, isn't it? What a wonderful truth that we get to experience. We don't come to this place by maximizing or by minimizing God's holiness. We maximize God's holiness. We maximize how sinful we are. And when we do that, we experience the full grace of God. I will submit to you, and I'll go over this in the next couple of weeks too. One of the greatest, one of the greatest weapons that Satan is, is actively using today is trying to make men feel better about themselves than they actually are. He really has. Because a person who has not seen themselves as totally depraved will never run to Jesus for salvation. And think about it for a moment. We, we live in a generation that says, if you want to be saved, you know, say a prayer, do a catechism, do something good, and you'll be saved. Jesus taught that if you want to be saved, confess that you are a... It's kind of like the backwards, isn't it? God saves those who recognize that they're at the lowest point. They realize that they have no hope without Jesus. What the devil says is, You're a pretty, you are a pretty good person. God would never judge you. And he slowly moves us up this ladder to where that we never see Jesus for who Jesus is. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John's heart was that men be reconciled to God. And that should be our heart. When we see somebody who is not a Christian, they can be our enemy, they can be our friend, they can be, our heart should burn with a passion for their salvation. Did you guys know this? The person who you can pinpoint in your mind right now that you don't really like, and every one of us in here can pick, think of somebody, right? So just go ahead, okay? Go ahead and pick that person out. Listen, they're going to spend eternity somewhere you ever thought of that? This isn't it. If they're lost, if they're literally manifesting their lost condition towards you, and you see that and you respond in a way that is the wrong response, you may, you may participate in their condemnation. 
when somebody wrongs me and I respond in a Christ-like way, I'm showing them what Christ is like. The Lord might be using me to witness to them, not just with my words, but also with my actions. John desired for the restoration spiritually of these people. Another thing, that, just, just to mention real quickly, another thing that we wrestle with is this, that we see everybody as being saved, right? So we look at everybody and we say, well, they're just saved. So when they wrong us, it's like, well, they're going to heaven, but I, I can, so that means, that means I can be really mean and mad, mad at them and mean to them. They're saved, so that's, they've got that settled. But we often don't think about the fact that maybe they're not saved. Maybe they're manifesting their unsaved condition by their actions. And maybe what they need to see is they need to see Christ. That's what John's heart was. And, and, and many of the authors of Scripture, you, you see that same passion in all the authors of Scripture. What did they desire? They desired for the salvation of men. Right? And that's what we should desire. For the salvation of men. So, so his desire for res- reconciliation was for the lost, but also for believers. He's not only writing to the lost here, but there's, there's a likelihood that he's writing to a group of believers. What do, what do believers need to be restored to? They don't need to be restored to a, to a um, relationship with God, right? Because that's something that is, is, um, is dealt with, it's done. God, God can never... If you're a believer this morning, if you are truly one of God's children, God can never look at you in a negative way. It's impossible. He did that to his son for you. Amen? However, you can look at God in a negative way. So the restoration that we need to experience as Christians is we need to experience a restoration to how we view God. How we see him in his goodness. How we see his grace. How we see his kindness to us. How we see his mercy. How we see God. And then when we see God right, what happens to how we see others? We see others right, don't we? It's, 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 um, when we are truly honest with ourselves about what Jesus Christ has done for us, we will have no problems doing it for others. How many of you in here, someone has offended you? How many of you, someone's offended you? Okay, good. Thought we had a perfect church on our hands. How many of you, somebody has offended you more than you've offended God? Okay, that's the response that I thought. If God can show us that kindness, can we show it to others? Matter of fact, I'll submit to you this. You'll feel really good about it. You don't do it for you, but you know you're doing the right thing and you're doing it for God. We need to be restored, to revitalize, to be strengthened in our walk with the Lord and our, our closeness to the Lord and our understanding of who the Lord is. And he says lastly this morning, the last kind of root, if you will, of being restored. Again, our view of God and now our view of others. And he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
If you're using another version this morning, it might say your joy. There, there is some debate on where, on where that fits. Here's the issue. What John is saying is, is that we together, that we together find fullness of joy. One of the great testaments to the power of God in an individual's life is that they're able to be joyful in the most difficult circumstances. They're able to walk around with a smile on their face and everybody knows that they're going through a horrible time, but there's something about this peace inside of them. There's some type of restfulness in them that is not explainable. It's like the Lord says in Philippians chapter number four, that the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, right? It passes understanding. What, what, why do you have that joy? Where do you get that from? Well, I get this joy from Christ who lives inside of me, who tells me that I'm not subject to my circumstances. I'm not bound by what's going on in my life. My heart, my focus, my life is in Christ and therefore my joy comes from him. Listen to what Isaiah 30 and verse 15 says. And I think it describes me sometimes. And uh, maybe it describes some of us as well. For thus, the Lord, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and resting you will find salvation. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. We, I wish I could stop the verse there. But it says, but you would not. It's a hard thing to do. But Christ can bring us that restfulness. Christ can bring us that joy. Christ can bring us that satisfaction in him. John Piper says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied, satisfied in him. And then he concludes, especially in times of loss. And then he says that we might be complete. The word simply means crammed full. It's like packing something to the top. There are two emphases here. Number one is that Christians should be full of joy. Smack to the top, nothing left over. But number two, the implication is this, that we, we should be full of joy. You see, joy doesn't just come by being alone. Some of us might say it does. Right? If I just didn't have to be around people, I would be joyful, right? <laughs> That's what an old preacher said that. He's like, you know what? Preaching would be easy if it weren't for dealing with people. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. Joy is not about being alone. Joy is about being together. So what John says is this. He says it's important that we bring everybody in that we can. It's important that we get, it's, all, it's almost like John is talking about those who are the elect. It's like he says, you know something? The fullness of joy isn't accomplished until everybody's in. It's not done. We need everybody to be full of joy, crammed full. It's like the Lord sending them out to bring the people in for the wedding, right? Till the, till the house is full. Jesus says in John 10 that there are other sheep who are not of this fold and I must go out and gather them too. And that's what we're to do. There are people right now in Hollister, California, 
who are sitting at home, the Lord has already put his hand on them and he just is sending us out to gather them up so that the joy might be full. Might be complete. Might be packed. Till the fullness comes in. Romans 11, verse 25. John's heart is that others be joyful. Where are we at this morning? I close with this. In the aftermath of disappointment, in the aftermath of discouragement, in the aftermath of difficulty, we can have an attitude like John that says, my passion and my heart is that others hear the truth, that others come into a relationship with Christ and that that relationship with Christ results in fellowship with each other. And that my heart is that their joy and my joy might be full. Or we can respond like Jonah, who God called to go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't like Nineveh very much, did he? Jonah didn't really want to go to Nineveh. Matter of fact, he went a completely opposite direction. God, you want me to go to Nineveh, but I'm going somewhere else. God had to put Jonah in the belly of a fish for three days, spit him out to get him to go to Nineveh, right? Is that us? We've got a neighbor next door. I mean, it's not even Nineveh. We got a neighbor next door that next door that complained about our tree growing into their yard. And I will never talk to that person again. Right? Maybe it's not that, maybe that's too small. Parked in front of my driveway. I will not tell them the gospel. Lord's like, yes, you will. <laughs> yeah, it's just gonna be hard to get you there, but you're gonna do it. Right? Think about it. God changes an entire group of people. And do you know what Jonah did? He complained about it. What an attitude, right? Say, I'm glad that I would never have that attitude. We'd be surprised. My call to us this morning is, yes, if we're going to be restored, whatever we've dealt with in life, whatever we've gone through, if we're going to be restored, it's not just going to come by having a proper view of God, but it's going to come by having a proper view of each other. Uh, I would call it this, if we could get a gospel view of everybody. The lost, the gospel. The saved, the gospel. Let the gospel guard our view of each other. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for the grace that you have shared with us, the goodness that we've experienced in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the fact that you, Lord Jesus, bore our sins and you gave us as a gift your righteousness. We rest in this reality. We hope in this truth. And we pray that you would help us to manifest that in how we walk, how we live, how we treat others that we might be a, a blessing, we might be a manifestation of grace 
in the lives of those that you've called us to minister to. I pray your blessing upon your word that it will not return void, but will accomplish that which it was sent out to accomplish. And I'll give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.